This is Scott Hartley, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? So uh, my name is Scott Hartley. I, I've, I'm working as a venture capitalist. Uh, and what that is, you know, if your readers uh, and listeners aren't familiar with venture capital, is uh, effectively we provide you know early stage uh, startup capital for for entrepreneurs. So uh, effectively, you know, we raise funds from uh, pension funds, institutional investors like university endowments, uh, high net worth families and individuals. And cobble those together into uh, what are known as you know venture capital funds, and then uh, basically we meet with entrepreneurs and different uh, startup founders, uh, exploring you know how to apply new technology tools to old problems, um, building businesses, and then kind of work with uh, those entrepreneurs to to help them scale their businesses. Uh, and so you know for the past uh, ten or fifteen years, I've worked in technology. I worked at Google uh, and at Facebook and at a, a think tank at uh, Harvard University called the Berkman Klein Center for uh, Internet and, and, and Technology Policy, um, and uh, and then into venture capital. And so venture is a really fun space because you kind of get a sixty thousand foot view of what's happening in the in the tech world. Um, you know, which I generally refer to as Silicon Valley, but obviously these days uh, technology is bubbling. You know, across all different verticals, all different walks of life. Um, and is really spanning, you know, m- multiplicity of cities uh, across America and the world. So I just have to comment. I mean, beautiful—that was awesome. A beautiful explanation, and I totally agree with you on the sort of multiple bubbling up. But what I think is funny is, yeah, we definitely have to explain venture capital. We also have to explain your title. So we're here on the occasion of a book um, that you're releasing called "The Fuzzy and the Techie." More so than even defining venture capital, I think we should probably define those terms. Yeah, absolutely. So the fuzzy and the techie uh, is really uh, a framing that has been popular on Stanford University's campus since the 1970s. Uh, the fuzzy and the techie refers to kind of this uh, lighthearted moniker of, of joking, you know, hey, are you a fuzzy? Hey, are you a techie? Um, and really fuzzy refers to uh, traditionally kind of the arts, the humanities, and the social sciences. Um, and techies referred to sort of the hard sciences or you know, computer sciences or engineering. Um, and really more than it being one versus the other, the book is about um, kind of the faux opposition between the two and how, you know, if you take a look at some of the quote unquote fuzzy majors, um, you know, if you study history or economics or 
you know, social science, like like political science, you know, in those in those disciplines, you see, uh, you know, heavily quantified uh, subject matter coming to fruition. You see, you know, people studying uh, people studying uh, statistical software and, and things like that to be able to put data in uh, and look at it in new ways. Um, and then if you look at, you know, hard subjects, quote unquote, like mechanical engineering, you see sort of this rise of uh, design thinking and bringing psychology to bear. Um, so really, it's kind of about the the merging of these two worlds, um, you know, going all the way back to, uh, this is not a new concept, you know, going back to 1959, for example, um, a guy named Charles Percy Snow gave a great lecture uh, at Cambridge University, which was called the Two Cultures Lecture. And uh, in that lecture, he basically said, wait a minute, you know, we need people who are studying thermodynamics to, you know, read Shakespeare. We need people who study English to, you know, also know um, you know, some of the basics of, of the natural sciences. And so really it's sort of this faux opposition between the two sides. Um, and that's really what the book kind of unpacks is this uh, kind of myth busts the notion that Silicon Valley and tech in general is filled with only technical people. And in fact, you know, if you look at any company, whether it's Apple or Google or Facebook or any startup, um, you know, 30 to 40 percent, I would venture, of of the employees of those companies are actually people who are coming from backgrounds in the social sciences, the humanities, the arts, um, you know, broadly the liberal arts. Um, but we'll get into more sort of what I mean by that because I think the definition of liberal arts, even you know, it's bashed in the media as you know, if you have an English degree, you must be a barista at a coffee shop. And in actuality, you know, uh, the liberal arts refers to this concept of sort of tugging on the mind in different ways, being exposed to a bunch of different ideas. It actually includes mathematics and the national natural sciences like physics and biology. So I think this sort of uh, notion that we've kind of thrown it under the bus uh, is really false, and it's uh, you know it's front and center right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So I th- actually thought that cappuccino making two hundred one was a part of every English literature curriculum. Is it not? I, I really. I, I, no, mean, I, I mean, I'm. <laughs> I will admit, I will admit, you know, as a political science major, I, I had, you know, I can, I can man a barista machine pretty well. Yeah. Uh, see? <laughs> but, you know, back, back in the heart of, uh, of Palo Alto, uh, you know, if you, if you man a barista machine, uh, you're probably front and center on some of the best tech ideas in the Valley because that's where a lot of deals get done or in those cafes. That's a fair point. You know, I, what I think is interesting about this is, you know, as soon as I, I was, I was admittedly unfamiliar with fuzzy and techie, but I come from, you know, the business school world where the dichotomy is between poets and quants, but it's the same thing, right? If you, if you're on the social science side, management, marketing, et cetera, you're a poet. If you're on the financial uh, accounting sides, you're a quant, right? And in the reality of both of these is that you know, we, we set them in opposition to each other um, because I don't know, we as humans just love categorizing people and then setting them in opposition to each other. But um, but the reality is that we, we need them both. When we always talk about we need poets and quants. And innovation is the same thing with fuzzies uh, and techies. And, you know, on this, on this show, we talk about leadership, uh, innovation, and strategy often. And often there is that assumption that innovation refers to technological innovation, refers to new products and services, and usually refers to, you know, the, the Mark Zuckerberg coding all night type stories. And while we give lip service to like this, oh, yeah, Steve Jobs once took a calligraphy class, and that's why Apple has Helvetica, right? But right. We, we don't actually dig deep into the idea that, no, actually, there's a lot of sort of moral problems, ethical problems, but also even just sort of like uh, marketing problems that fuzzies can help these tech companies solve uh, far more far more quickly than A-B testing ever would. 
Right. I mean, and even the uh, so Steve Jobs, obviously, you know, studying at at Reed College and dropping out and taking that famous calligraphy class that led to you know sans serif fonts and beautiful typography and, and all that. Um, you know, that's sort of become uh, common knowledge. I think people recognize, okay, for for the Waz, who was the techie, there was the Jobs, who was sort of the fuzzy. Um, but in actuality, you know, Jobs had major streaks of uh, understanding what people wanted in psychology and understanding the tech enough to be dangerous with Waz. And so there was sort of this blurring of those lines. Um, you know, similarly, I think if you look at Zuckerberg, people think, well, you know, he's just this lightning fast coder who stayed up all night in his dorm room and, and did all this by himself. Um, you know, you look at some of his co-founders like Chris Hughes. Chris Hughes was a he was a history major at, at uh, Harvard, and Zuck actually, you know, if you look at his background, you know, even though he obviously is a great coder, uh, he studied psychology like his older sister Randy. Uh, he went to Exeter, which is a liberal arts prep school where they use uh, what's known as the Harkness method, where they have a round table. Nobody is in opposition to one another, so it's very Socratic. It's all sort of question and answer, kind of drawing ideas out of you. Um, you know, and he studied uh, ancient Greek and Latin. And so, you know, here's a guy who he won a prize in classical studies, uh, you know, in high school. And so he's not as uh, sort of monolithically tech as you might think. You know, it's a guy who reads uh, pop, you know, uh, science fiction and, and various things. So I think our definitions of, of who's fuzzy and who's techie, um, th these lines are, are very blurred. Um, and so, you know, I think to your point of, of looking kind of inside some of these companies, um, you know, I'm happy to give give some examples of, of sort of people at the helm, like you said, you know, on the management or marketing side. But I think what's really interesting are, you know, people that are deeply involved in, in product development itself that actually sort of spearheading the creation of these companies. Because oftentimes I'm the kind of counterintuitive truth that I recognized uh, sitting in this sort of 60,000 foot venture seat was that oftentimes it was the fuzzy who had come out of uh, a different walk of life, a different academic background. Um, who had sort of seen the world through a different lens and was saying, wait a minute, this technology that I see, this new tool can be applied to my old problem. Why don't I start a company to do that? And in many, many cases, those were actually the more profound ideas than sort of tech for tech's sake. It was tech applied to a particular domain um, where you know, that, that sort of value add of coming at it from a different angle was what really uh, created a lot of value. Yeah, I mean, let's let's do that. Let's dive into it because well, I mean, one of the stories that fascinated me the most was um, Snapchat and Snap and the, the as a company, I, the idea that there was a fuzzy in the company who sort of recognized. I mean, the real appeal of for for everyone listening who is over thirty five, um, Snapchat is sort of like Instagram, but the photos go away relatively quickly, and you string together stories kind of like you do in Facebook Messenger now because they're trying to compete with Snapchat. But the whole the whole thing became a craze, and really like. At first, there was this uh, discussion about how like teenagers love it because there's no record of what they were sending two days later or whatever. But really, in reading your book, it came to realize that it came out of this idea that, no, if we're trying to capture moments, we need to make them as ephemeral as real-life moments so that they actually feel more real by not being permanent. Yeah, it's a really fascinating example. Um, so you know, in the book, I talk about a guy named Nathan Jurgensen. Um, and Nathan was, you know, he was based in Brooklyn. He was a PhD sociology student who was writing, you know, blog posts about what he was calling uh, digital dualism. And digital dualism was this concept he had uh, sort of thought through of saying, you know, this, there's this fallacy between believing that everything that's online is fake 
and everything that's offline is real. Because what we're seeing today are, you know, teenagers, uh, or not even teenagers, you know, people, uh, people probably our age, uh, you know, who are who are taking pictures of their meal every day. They're taking, you know, these sort of manicured photos. Uh, they're dressing up, stage dressing their real life to put an Instagram filter on it and and display it as as you know what they're living. And in many ways, this sort of artifice behind this creation of what's in the physical world and then projecting into the digital world is fairly fake. Um, whereas to do something in the digital world that's ephemeral and happens instantaneously and is you know is, is authentic, that could actually be more real than the physical world. And so this sort of duality, this uh, you know calling something online fake while something offline is real, he kind of recognized that this sort of this sort of false duality that existed. Um, you know, one of the things that I think think is really fascinating is, you know, for for people using Snapchat today, we live in this era of endless storage where you know everything can be stored, you know, bits and bytes and, and everything are are everywhere. Um, and so, really, to create scarcity, uh, Snapchat was brilliant. You know, kind of psychologically to create scarcity, they they have everything be deleted. Um, so, you know, in this world where everything is abundant, they created scarcity by making it uh, possible to delete. And so really they kind of tugged on the, the psychology and like took, took real stock in this sociological observation that Nathan had. And uh, Evan Spiegel, who you know, runs Snapchat, was based out in Venice Beach, California. And he came across these articles on digital dualism and he said, you know, why don't you come work for Snap? Um, why don't you run even a publication for us that will back um, and the publication will be called Real Life? And actually, this publication will be only based online. <laughs> so kind of this ironic play on uh, on real life and online and digital dualism. And I think it's a really great example of, you know, how a sociologist is front and center at the heart of, you know, a tech company. And, uh, you know, this this is evident in, the, in a number of other domains as well. You know, for example, Stuart Butterfield, uh, who founded Slack, which is a, uh, a communications, a corporate communications platform that's sort of taking the place of email in, in many companies and how people share, for example, articles uh, within a company. Um, the, the whole development of that product came out of another failed startup that was a gaming startup. Um, but he had sort of this uh, philosophical mind to recognize uh, he studied philosophy both undergrad and in grad school. And he said, wait a minute, you know, there seems to be this kind of kernel of truth in this other idea. Let's pursue that and see where it goes. And he actually attributes sort of the unveiling of uh, Slack to this training in philosophy. And so I think there are a number of different examples of people kind of at the helm of product development, um, you know, that are coming at it from these different backgrounds and different uh, walks of life that are really leading to these kind of uh, breakthrough moments in how we, you know, how we tweak the technology. So, it's, you know, really at this point, I think uh, the kind of comparative advantage or the, the, the bottleneck is really in having this unique observation, this unique lens on how to apply the technology than it is just having the technology built. Yeah, I mean, okay, so Slack is another example that I wanted to dive deeper on because it seemed to me in reading the book that and, and uh, long-time listeners to the show, people who read my recent book, Underneath Management, will will know I am not necessarily a fan of email and admire the companies that are taking steps to go, this is way too overloaded. But it's a great example of, at, at the lightest possible sort of ethical level, of tech inventing this amazing tool you know, decades ago called email, but never actually thinking about, like, okay, what are going to be the long-term implications of this, the collaborat collaboration overload, the getting back from a three-day weekend and having 400 
emails in your inbox, et cetera. No one ever necessarily thought about kind of the human element and Slack as a tool developed for that. It's not a more communication is better communication. It's a let's actually solve this collaboration overload problem. Right, right. And I think we see, you know, in product development writ large, you know, going all the way back to Donald Norman um, at UC San Diego, who wrote a book called Design of Everyday Things and kind of coined this term of user experience, um, really kind of designing for the human behind the technology. And Slack is a great example of that. Um, you know, if you look at, at Apple, they have Apple University, where they actually bring in philosophers and different professors. Uh, Joel Padolny, uh, who used to run the Yale School of Management, was sort of behind the creation of this Apple University and how they preserve the culture of, of Steve Jobs. How do they build great products that can really be, you know, bicycles for the mind, as, as he said. Um, you know, and I think if you look at, uh, you know, companies like Google, for example, um, one guy that I feature in the book, uh, Tristan Harris, uh, he was Google's in-house product philosopher for some time. And, you know, when he was at Google, uh, he's since left to found uh, a movement, which he calls the time well spent movement. But what he focuses on is, you know, if you have these very few people kind of making these decisions about uh, what to build, how to tweak, how to build in, uh, you know, buttons that lead to this or that, um, what are the impacts as you multiply these out by billions of users? And these, you know, these, these implications are, are large and the opportunity cost of people's time is huge. So if you create something that leads people to spend more time on their phone or more time in their email inbox, um, this actually has ramifications for you know productivity writ large across society. So you know how are we thinking about these things? Who's in the room? Are there you know just a couple predominantly uh, white young men making these decisions? Are there you know sort of a, is there a more pluralistic approach to how we make these decisions? Um, you know I think if you look at your mobile phone, it's a great example of this. You know, we're kind of in this uh, always on, always off, semi-sync, you know, continuous partial attention as, as uh, one uh, former Apple executive, Linda Stone, she likes to say, um, you know, where we're constantly interrupted, we're constantly bombarded by notifications. Um, we have this sort of interruption lifestyle where we're drawn into different products um, in this kind of com competition for our attention. Um, you know, and Tristan asks all these questions of, you know, if we're being interrupted at sort of different frequencies with different reward cycles, this starts to look a lot like, um, you know, BF Skinner uh, sort of variable reward structures where we're actually, you know, effectively keeping slot machines in our pockets, um, where we're drawn into these slot machines, um, you know, 150 times a day on average, which is, uh, it's kind of bananas, you know, when you think about the, the number of times that you, you swipe to open your phone, you, you know, you click on Instagram, you click on email, you scroll um, to refresh your email even though you did it 15 seconds before. Uh, and then you take a step back and you say, wait a minute, you know, what am I doing with my time? Um, so, so he really asks these questions of, you know, uh, should we have a food and drug administration? Should we have an FDA? Should we have a food pyramid for how much time and how we're thinking about engagement with, uh, with these products? And, uh, you know, who's, who's cultivating these design standards? Um, these are all kind of the, the questions of, of, our, of our era, you know, and these are things that uh, currently are decided in, you know, product development meetings at probably, you know, five to ten companies, mostly in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and they're big questions. And so, you know, I think in the, in the concept of the fuzzy and the techie, it's, uh, you know, kind of poses some of those questions of um, why the liberal arts are important, why it's important to engage um, people from various uh, disciplines and backgrounds uh, to be part of this conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so a lot of it reminds me of. Are you familiar with the work of Near Eyal and uh, and Hooked, the book Hooked? So he, yeah, he, absolutely. He, yeah, he talks a lot about this idea. I mean, I don't know that he uses the term slot machine in your pockets. I love that analogy from uh, from Tristan Harris. Um, and you know, I, I also heard one person say it as like as like a tragedy. It was sort of like I saw the greatest minds of my generation focused on the pressing problem of how to get you to click on a button. Right, which is which is to say, in the time well spent literature, there are definitely things we we probably ought to be debating more so than just how to keep engagement with an app going. the The other thing I think is interesting on this human element side is you have a section in the book about, um, in the same way that we're using sort of this A/B testing and optimizing to keep you hooked into this app, there's this uh, assumption that comes along with this techies will inherit the earth idea that big data is the source of all sort of truth, right? Um, but yet at the same time, by definition, that big data sort of strips us of the human element. And there are folks that are pioneers to remind us that we need, yeah, okay, we can make way better decisions with more data, but we can't strip the people from the data points. Uh, otherwise, we arrive at something that, that may be optimized for us, but isn't optimized for society. Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating about the, you know, over the past five years, I'd say the conversation has moved from, uh, if you, probably if you look at queries, uh, frequency of queries on Google, you know, five years ago, big data was everywhere. And today, all the companies that used to have big data all over their slides now have artificial intelligence all over their slides. So, you know, so the nomenclature and the framing of how people market uh, their technologies changes, um, you know, but under underlying that, I think if you look at sort of uh, really what's happening is, you know, whether it's from Moore's law or, you know, uh, more computing power in small spaces, leading to sort of cost reductions in sensors, sensor ubiquity, sensors are on our bodies, they're in our clothes, they're in our phones, they're in our buildings now with the internet of things. Um, and as you get this uh, proliferation of sensors, you start getting a proliferation of, uh, of data production, right? So uh, more and more data is uh, is great, but you know, I think we've, we've sort of looked, looked uh, at sort of this rise of big data as being this promise that um, actually going all the way back to, you know, to Plato and to Sir Francis Bacon and, you know, all the way back, there's been this idea that with, you know, more and more information, we will have more and more knowledge. And I think that uh, as has been proven sort of throughout history, it's not always the case. And so Voltaire actually has this great, uh, great quote that I'll paraphrase, um, but he says, you know, judge the man by the questions that he asks, uh, not by the answers that he gives. And, uh, and I think that that's something that's really profound today, too. You know, we have um, this massive proliferation of data, but really it's about the humans in the room that are, you know, asking questions of the data, that are questioning biases and how it's created, how it's collected, how it's framed. Um, you know, I think some, some great examples of that um, for, you know, for one example would be looking at data on, um, on predictive policing. So in a number of uh, jurisdictions, a number of different cities, um, different police departments have experimented with um, using data to predict where to send police officers. And you might say, okay, that's that's wonderful. That's a great way to be able to, uh, you know, kind of be, be, be out there in advance of where you might need um, force projection. But at the same time, you know, you have to ask the question of is wh how is that data being collected? Obviously, predictive policing is reliant on police uh, data of, of previous crimes committed. And previous crimes committed are usually based on previous crimes reported. Um, and if you look at you know, when and where and how crimes are being reported, there may or may not be bias in how that's done. 
Um, so, for example, if you have a heavily immigrant community, um, maybe there's a lower uh, percentage of reported crime than there is in another neighborhood. So you just have to start looking kind of behind uh, behind this veil of just more data is more intelligence to say, well, who's asking the questions of, of that? Do we have, you know, uh, sociologists and maybe social workers in the room? Do we have people from different backgrounds, not just, um, you know, the guys writing the algorithms uh, to predict where the police are going to go? Yeah, I mean, it's. I actually, I think Tom Cruise solved that, didn't he? A couple of years ago, something. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, but you're, I mean, it it brings to mind all of these ethical questions that that a computer or artificial intelligence or big data, whatever you want to call the acro- the techie acronym of the day, can't solve it. One of the other interesting areas that um, I found in the book is, as an educator especially, is the idea around learning and that, you know, technology can obviously help us learn. We talk a lot about a lot, about a lot of different amazing things like Khan Academy, the proliferation of, of education that's out there because of technology. At the same time, uh, we talk about STEM and, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of people, this is what I've always thought is interesting, there's a lot of people that think STEM is synonymous with innovation and in reality it's probably better said STEAM, if not uh, probably adding two or three other uh, letters to the acronym, the acronym, because again, we need that sort of broader liberal arts idea to really think philosophically about what requires learning. And this, the most interesting thing I found is that this applies inside of Silicon Valley. There are schools that are now eschewing technology um, in order to enhance student learning outcomes. Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, you know, I think I think gone are the days where we can graduate with one degree and assume relevance forever. Right. So one of the guys that I talked to in the book, um, Matt Brimer. Who... So my undergrad degree was in English. I'm going to go ahead and ensue. <laughs> it was either it was either irrelevant immediately or it's going to be relevant as long as we speak English. But no, I'm, I'm so, I kid. I totally jest. And, and mine is in political science. Right. So um, so we're, we're cut from the same cloth. But um, yeah. So Matt Brimer, who uh, he's a co-founder of General Assembly, which is sort of I liken it to an urban community college uh, for technical uh, literacy, sort of upskilling and different technology skills. And uh, the interesting thing is Matt is actually a sociology major um, from Yale who knew about building community, knew about sort of uh, design and, and what people uh, needed to feel part of the community. Um, and And I think that uh, Matt's got this great quote where he talks about how your your education should always be in beta. So it's an engineering term for it should always be a work in progress. And uh, you know when you think about that, uh, we can't have these proxies for qualification that are 20 years old anymore, right? We need to have proxies that are closer and closer tied to skill sets of the day. So if you think about uh, you know your education should always be in beta. I think it's important to think okay, you know, what are, what are, what's the ground uh, foundation that you lay to think about what the world might look like in 2050 or 2060? Obviously, being able to uh, think creatively, to complex problem solve, to communicate with others, these are all fundamental things that are required regardless of what the world looks like in 50 years. Um, whether or not you have to know Ruby on Rails or to code in you know, one of many different languages, um, you know, that honestly changes on a, on a six-month uh, to one-year timeline. And so I think what, what Matt's done a great job of communicating is that you know, we should learn sort of these uh, basic human skills, and then we should have this uh, mentality or ethos that we should continually be investing in our own education. Um, so to, to, your, to your question, you know, if you look back uh, in Silicon Valley, What's interesting is that a lot of the founders, uh, or a number of founders from you know techie backgrounds, uh, 
are sending their kids to Waldorf schools, and Waldorf schools um, have this sort of uh, it's the Rudolf Steiner method. It's it's largely not um, no technology in the classroom. It's more based on kind of analog or uh, playing with things rather than with devices. Um, and it's it's interesting that this is uh, sort of a, there's a groundswell of people doing this in, in Silicon Valley. And I think you know it's important to say. Uh, it's not about eschewing technology. It's it's about developing technological literacy, to be sure. Um, it's about familiarity with data, familiarity with some of these things. But I think uh, it's how do we blend them in the classroom? So you know, blended learning is something that's um, really kind of coming uh, coming into stride. Uh, it's what this means, you know, is sort of uh, not having an online only curriculum, right? Where uh, you put people in front of a video lecture and you expect them to learn better because it's a, you know it's a Yale lecture or whatever it might be. Um, it's you know instead it's sort of blending uh, technology in the classroom. Uh, one great example of this is uh, you know dealing with messy problems. So how do you uh, how do you engage people to think critically? Um, well, one is you give them an answer that's not Googleable. You know, give I mean, give them a question that's not Googleable, and uh, you know, but give them technology to be able to uh, wrestle with that problem. Um, but but that's something where you know, blended learning in the classroom, you might uh, pose a question uh, that has you know no easy answer, where you teach people to look at sources, you teach uh, kids to to you know identify is this a trustworthy source? Is this um, on balance with another, how do we think about you know where truth lies, kind of in this debate? Um, and those are all things that you need to navigate this world, as we very well know. You know, given the the sort of uh, political undercurrents and, and what's happening in uh, you know algorithmically determined news feeds, for example, um, you know we need to have sort of a critical eye as we uh, examine um, things that uh, are shown to us every day. So you know, how do you teach for that? Um, and those are the important uh, those are the important questions, kind of. Blending technology, bringing it into the into the child's uh, um, field of view, but then also sort of teaching these timeless skills of uh, of adaptability. So you close the book with um, a discussion too of not just on learning. We transition from that into sort of jobs, and you know, you said something really interesting: the idea that we should assume that every degree will be irrelevant in sort of for job preparation. But there's a lot of implications for not only technology, but how this partnership will affect. The future of jobs and you know we we tend to the interesting thing is the headlines always seem like oh this technology will make offices irrelevant or it'll make employees irrelevant etc i mean but i mean Keynes was wrong uh, hundreds of years you know 100 years ago when he said that oh that we're all of this technology will shorten the work week to 15 hours and we'll have this surplus of leisure like that's unfortunately clearly, right <laughs> well yeah no exactly but that's clearly not going to happen so knowing that in, in this partnership, what does that mean for sort of the future of work in general and where we're headed? Yeah, you know, that's the question. That's the question of the day, right? Um, and I think it's a really interesting, you know, if you zoom out, um, even today I read an article where the headline was, uh, you know, again, sort of uh, touting this uh, doomsday scenario. And then you read the article and you kind of peel back the onion and you read the quotes from the experts um, positioned in the article. And oftentimes they're, they're the ones saying, well, you know, really it's more about blending these two. It's about human-computer interaction. It's about fluency with data, fluency with machines, but it's also about the human additive component that's, that's heavily relevant in, in, in that equation. Um, so I think even in the even in how we read headlines, uh, this goes back to this uh, notion of liberal arts, notion of 
um, depth of inquiry and questioning, right? I think we're, we're in the Twitter universe where, you know, we read the headline and we assume that we know the answer. And, you know, even in some of these uh, articles, uh, the answer is, is embedded down in paragraph seven. So, um, you know, I think, so taking a step back and looking at what this looks like in the future, um, you know, there are a bunch of studies uh, that have come out over the past few years. Um, one that came out a couple years ago uh, from Oxford University in the UK, you know, claimed that 47% of all U.S. jobs were at high risk of automation. Um, you know, and this sort of set off the alarm bells. And I think this is uh, where we started getting the media frenzy around automation. Um, there, there have since been a number of studies that have taken a more measured look, I think, at the, at the ecosystem. For example, uh, the McKinsey Global Institute came out with a study in the early part of this year, 2017, um, where they looked at over 800 jobs. Um, they broke down those jobs into all the constituent tasks, recognizing that jobs are not unidimensional, but jobs have a bunch of different components to them. And then they looked at you know, what all the technology out there uh, is available and, and what it can do and which tasks within those jobs are feasible to be technologically automated. And they found actually that 5% of jobs are fully automatable at this point, which you know, from a societal perspective is a big deal. And that's something that you know, raises questions about basic income and unemployment and all those things, which are very important uh, discussions that are you know, being had. Um, but what they, what they really said was you know, for 60% of all these jobs, these 800 jobs that they looked at, 30% of those tasks could be automated. So what that means is that, you know, our jobs are going to change. 30% of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis might change. Um, but really, you know, if that's collecting data in, uh, or it's manipulating data in Excel, or it's searching for information in your Gmail inbox, which you can never, ever find, you know, it's things like that, that um, we spend a lot of time during our day doing. Um, but could those things be done better by machine? And the answer is probably yes. You know, so we're going to see uh, machine learning. We're going to see artificial intelligence. We're going to see these things come into how we deal with our day-to-day -day, uh, employment. Um, but I think rather than the 40, 47% of all jobs are going to disappear, it's, you know, 30% of tasks within 60% of jobs, as McKinsey says, um, you know, those might change. And, you know, what's even more interesting is that the timeline for this shift, um, they, they estimate is anywhere from 8 to 28 years. So you start thinking about, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you prepare for this, uh, for this changing world? Well, you know, I think you prepare for it by gaining fluency with uh, dealing with data, dealing with machines, um, or dealing with sort of the human-to-human -human component. So obviously, if machines are taking over the more scripted, uh, rote aspects of our jobs, um, we actually kind of level up to what we're really good at. Um, so our comparative advantage as, as humans are those very human tasks, right? So um, these are going to be things like like creativity and communication. Um, and one of the really interesting studies, and I'll kind of close on this, um, that, that I bring into sort of the end of the book, uh, and it's great further reading for anyone interested in this, um, is a guy named David Deming, uh, who's at the Harvard Education School. And uh, David, what he's, what he's done is looked at um, sort of soft skills and this quote-unquote dark matter, right? We can't quantify what soft skills are. It's fuzzy, and therefore, you know, people sort of... Uh, you know, they denigrate it as, uh, you know, must be, you know, you must be a barista if you, you know, if you can't define that. Um, so, so it has less value. But in actuality, you know, what he's, what he's looked at is, you know, if you, if you have machines taking away the more uh, simple and complicated tasks within a job, 
that are kind of fact-based and repetitious and have best practices. What's left in any job are the complex uh, interactions between people. And what's interesting in that is you start having specialization. So you might specialize in one thing and I might specialize in another. In order to get something done, we actually have to trade tasks. So there's this trade that happens. And obviously in any trade, there are transaction costs. And what's really fascinating is uh, communication skills and some of these soft skills are actually, you know, he's, he's done studies to look at how they minimize those transaction costs and they actually allow more fluid trading between complex tasks. So, you know, if you, if you think about the skills needed in tomorrow's economy, um, what's, what's really fascinating is, uh, you know, these softer skills, uh, the quote-unquote dark matter of uh, the liberal arts in these, these areas, um, actually come to the forefront as being our comparative advantage, uh, you know, with machines taking over some of the less complicated stuff. Oh, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, I would add, um, it's an old, older book, but it's, I can't believe I'm saying it's an older book. Actually, that makes me feel old. Um, but it's a great one. Daniel Pink's, uh, a whole new mind really talked about this sort of issue. I in my opinion was one of the first to sort of talk about this idea that if certain tasks, 30% of 60% of, of all tasks are going to be automated, then the, the place to place your bets in terms of skill sets, et cetera, were on skills that the liberal arts develop more. The, I mean, he sort of uses the right brain, left brain analogy, even though we know mm-hmm. that that's, you know, the actual thing is bunk, but it still sort of speaks to that idea. Personally, I like calling them fuzzy and techie more than left brain and right brain. <laughs> so the, uh, the book, again, is The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World, speaks to both my English major side and my innovation junkie side. Um, I love it. Scott, if it's okay with you, I want to transition a bit from the book and ask you a few questions, some questions that we ask all of our guests. That sounds great. So uh, first question, uh, and, the, and I should say it's a lightning round, but these are big questions. The first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Wow. The best advice I've ever received, um, I would say what's interesting, um, so right out of school, I did, uh, I did an internship at the White House. And during that internship, I uh, sat down with a guy who was the head of domestic policy. And he told me something that I, I guess I've never really forgotten, which was, you know, uh, proximity to power is not power in and of itself. And you've got to craft your own journey and your own uh, sort of uh, your, your own path through the world. And so, you know, if you may be uh, at Google, you may be at, at any company and you're close to where you want to be. Sometimes I think you almost need to kind of go orthogonal to that in a different, totally different direction uh, to get maybe two steps ahead uh, to where you might want to be next. And so it's just sort of a counterintuitive notion that, you know, you may be next to where you want to be, but you actually have to go far away to get to that next stage. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, what's an ideal workday look like for you? Wow. This is, uh, I mean, as you know, as, as an author, uh, it's, uh, it's a very self-deterministic uh, process. So for me, I'd say an ideal workday is one where I can kind of uh, touch on creating, uh, kind of absorbing content from, from others. Um, I find that podcasts actually are one of my, one of my go-to uh, mediums. So for me, uh, I love walking. Um, and oftentimes if I get in a rut and I can't, uh, I can't think of sort of which direction to go, 
Uh, I have the you know, the blessing of living in, in New York City, where you can basically walk in any direction for as long as you want, <laughs> and end up end up at a cafe or a bar or someplace. Or the and, East River, uh, you know, whatever. The East River. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll put on a podcast or two, and I'll I'll walk for an hour, and I usually end up sitting down somewhere, brimming with ideas, uh, with a notepad that I you know I've got to write down. But for me, that's kind of my that's kind of my get out of jail free card. Is uh, you know if I if I get stuck in a corner, um, I just know I can I can pop in my uh, you know my podcast playlist and and I can just walk for an hour and, and I'll usually come up with with something some direction that I need to go on the, on the back end of that. Awesome, awesome. What are you reading right now? You know the the uh, through the process I just picked up uh, Sense Making, which is uh, a book that's uh, similar similar to the Fuzzy and the Tucky. It's about the humanities and the in the age of the algorithm, um, and uh, it's great. I think you know one of the fun things about going through this process is uh, is meeting uh, various other authors uh, putting out work, and I think it's a it's it's uh, it's much like the venture world in the sense that in venture capital, oftentimes it's a very small community, but you're competing for for deals, you're competing to you know invest in different startups, and if there's a Snapchat that comes along, chances are everybody wants to invest in the Snapchat as soon as they know that it's uh, it's a it's a good thing that's going somewhere. Um, and it's kind of fun, I think, in in the in the book world. Uh, I use the word frenemies, uh, you know, where you're kind of you're kind of com- lightly competitive, but you're you're basically uh, you know moving around the same genre, um, talking about some of, some of the similar ideas, uh, and really you're you know you're all on the same team trying to uh, advance the debate. Um, and I think. You know, one of the, the most interesting uh, things that I can do uh, through the creation of the Fuzzy and the Techie is raise these questions because, uh, again, it's more about asking questions than it is about finding the answers. And I think as long as we're all talking about these issues um, and baking them into the conversation as we continue to develop our new Techie tools, um, you know, that's that's a win-win. Hmm. I definitely I, I feel you on the frenemies thing. And, you know, the, the thing that I've always used is uh, yeah, we're all trying to sort of advance the same thing, but even sort of we're not necessarily competing for book sales. I don't think in an age of Amazon, you usually have to add two books to your cart to get free shipping, which means that when you're partnering with these other authors, there's some there's some benefit there. It's not like they're going to drop your book out of the cart. They might even add it into it um, just to get that free shipping. So um, this is probably the question that causes most people pause, and that's okay. It's one of my favorites. What do you believe that most people don't? Well, I think that what's interesting with uh, with the fuzzy and the techie is, you know, some of the feedback um, that I received early on in the book was, hey, you know, you're preaching the choir. You know, people believe in the liberal arts. You know, if you talk to anyone in academia, um, they're going to say, of course, you know, this is uh, CP Snow. This is consilience. This is uh, a debate that's been going on left brain, right brain. Um, this is something that's been going on for, for a number of years, um, or probably throughout throughout the history of time. Um, so nothing new here. And I think uh, what, I, what I believe that I don't think everyone believes uh, is a function of geography. And I think that in Silicon Valley, um, there has been sort of this uh, gauntlet thrown down to some degree of, you know, study STEM and you will be relevant. Uh, be technical and you will be relevant. Study the liberal arts and you are doomed. Um, and one, you know, that's uh, it's, a false, uh, it's a false dichotomy because the liberal arts 
incorporates mathematics in the in the natural sciences like physics and 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 biology and uh, and chemistry. And you know, if you look at where innovation is going in many uh, domains, uh, CRISPR on the genetics front, for example, is heavily rooted in in biology and genetics. And and those are those are subjects also of the liberal arts. Those are science subjects of the liberal arts. Um, so you know, it's this false dichotomy of uh, of STEM versus uh, versus liberal arts. And so I think um, just trying to bring bring that conversation back to the forefront, um, because in, in Silicon Valley, there's been this lionization of the techie and the sort of denigration of of uh, of the humanist. And I think that really uh, we're all one and the same. And uh, it's important that our technologists, uh, you know, if you're if you're a JavaScript guy that you read James Joyce, you know, and if you're uh, you know, if you're if you're on the other side that, that you kind of come come to come come at things from both sides. I love it. I love it. So our final question, uh, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? And you can answer this as the fuzzy or the techie or both. Yeah. So one of the, um, one of the things that I, th- I think it's a good question. I, so I'll go to, um, you know, Drew, Drew Faust, who's the president of Harvard. She gave a great uh, lecture to the cadets graduating um, from the 2016 class at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. And uh, she told them uh, to keep a copy of the Iliad under their pillow, um, that you know, the liberal arts and the humanities um, were uh, what helped people grapple with the hard problems. Uh, she said, you know, it, it helps you scrutinize what's at hand, uh, even through the thick dust of danger or drama or disorienting strangeness. And I, I really love that quote because I do think that the more you read and the more that you uh, empathize with other perspectives, you know, through uh, literature, for example, um, those are the things that are of, of timeless value. Um, so I really think that that leadership uh, is kind of rooted in, in that uh, universality of, of being exposed to, to things. And and, uh, and and so that's that's something that, that really spoke to me was was her speech to the cadets. And I think. You know, if you look at if you look at West Point, uh, and if you look at sort of one of the quips uh, that the Army throws at the Navy, which I think is kind of funny, um, it's that uh, the Army equips the man while the Navy uh, mans the machine, mans the equipment. And uh, obviously, they're they're both uh, amazing institutions, the Naval Academy and, and, and West Point. Um, but I but I think that it's uh, it's interesting that the liberal arts are so front and center in the way that we continue to train, um, you know, leaders, uh, in the military. And, uh, you know, it's fitting that if you, you know, if you look at the, the curriculum that's required at, uh, at West Point, you know, every, every graduate has to take literature, every graduate has to take a year's worth of military art history. Um, and it really just contextualizes, uh, you know, what they do in this sort of timeless nature, um, of, you know, of what's come before. I love it. Great answer. So um, the book, again, is The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the World. Highly recommend you check it out. And then I would add to your cart to get the free shipping, either sense-making or uh, a whole new mind, etc. They're, they're fascinating look at this blend between the liberal arts world and the technology world uh, and really wrestling with questions that we need to be wrestling with. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David.